Is this on? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, as you may know, I recently took a sexy young trophy wife. That was just 41 years ago. Today she's a sexy, hot grandmother, and we seem to spend all of our money visiting our four grandchildren. Unfortunately, she couldn't be here today. She was speaking at a conference in Hungary. Um, but I mention that because we got married very young, and when we did so, we really didn't know anything. But the one thing we got right is that we took Genesis chapter 2 as a guide for our marriage. And I have to say it has worked. So let's pray together a moment before I preach. Oh, Father, thank you for the blessing of your word that we can receive today. Help us to think honestly and truly in your presence with our Bibles open. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a uh, philosophy professor in secular universities, I often had my students read an essay entitled Plain Sex by Ellen Goldman. He was a uh, top representative of the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s. And he asked in this essay, what is so special about sex that it requires special rules? Now, Goldman claimed that sexual desire is merely desire for contact with another person's body. He said there's no necessary connection between sex and love or romance or communication, commitment or marriage or having children. He wrote, and I quote, Why should we consider it moral to play tennis with somebody we don't love, but immoral to have sex with somebody we don't love? Why would we consider it moral to eat lunch with someone of the same sex, but immoral to have sex with that same person? Why should we be permitted to go to a movie purely for pleasure, but not have sex purely for pleasure? Now, to be fair to Goldman, I must point out that he did not tolerate sexual abuse or rape or anything of that sort. He would, would be appalled by the news of today. But in his view, there are no particular rules or norms or standards that can be applied to sexuality. There are only the general principles that might apply to any relationship, such as honesty and respect. Now, these are some of the best principles about sex that there are today coming from the secular world around us. And his principles really are much better than are practiced by most of the world we see. He really would not uh, uh, tolerate sexual abuse. Uh, but at the same time, we must notice that modern secularism, which uh, Goldman represented so well, has made life empty there's been a tremendous loss of meaning. Even sex is empty for him. And we could hardly be any farther away from the world of the Bible. Old-fashioned sexual morality is not, I believe, as cold and empty as plain sex. When we open the Bible, we find ourselves in an entirely different world. This is a mental and emotional world that leads to different relationships and different results. In this world of the Bible that we see here in Genesis chapter 2 especially addresses our deepest emotional and relational needs. And here we find a convincing answer to the question raised by Goldman, what is so special about sex? Let me read a couple of lines from Genesis 2 again. 
in the translation I like. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Or it can say a man will cling to his wife. Now, the Hebrew word here is, is a fascinating word. It's called this dabak in Hebrew. And it has a couple different shades of meaning that uh, sort of enlighten each other. On the one hand, when your mouth clings to your, your tongue clings to your mouth and you can't talk right, as happens to me sometimes, it's said that it clings to your mouth, your tongue clings. Or when a man is in battle, it's said that he clings to his, he clings to his sword firmly. And it's that same verb in Hebrew. It's impressive. It means hanging on to something very, very tightly. But also, it's the word that's used to describe the relationship of David's soldiers to him, their king. They clung to him with bonds of loyalty and trust. This word cling or cleave describes marriage and sex. And it implies something that we should think about a little bit, is that uh, sex communicates and promises that one will cleave to the other person with ties of loyalty and affection. The two meanings of Tibet come together here. In the Bible, there is no such thing as plain sex. Sex is not casual or trivial. Rather, sex is filled with meaning. Uh, the, the sexual embrace communicates and symbolizes everything that marriage means. Physical union is a sign and symbol of spiritual, emotional, and social union. You may find this curious, but there have been some religious groups in history that had a pause in the middle of a wedding ceremony. The couple would go to a nearby room that had been repaired. They would cling to each other naked. And after that, they would redress, come to the wedding, and finish the wedding ceremony. Shocking as that may seem, that was because of the close tie between marriage and sexuality that was envisioned by those people. I happen to think this would actually be a good practice for us to reclaim in our day, in a time when sex has been so emptied, to put it back into the middle of a wedding in a very tasteful and delicate manner. It would be radical but it would be a step to reclaim the dignity of sex in a world that thinks that the best that sex can be is what's portrayed in the Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, turning to the ideas in the famous novels by E.L. James, we see notions very similar to those found in ancient mythology, some of which were communicated into our modern world by Sigmund Freud. In that ancient mythology, there was a connection between death and sex. And it was described in such a way that, uh, that life arises from death, and sex in that worldview is always dark. Eros and Thanatos were united instincts, the death instinct and the life instinct mixed together so that death and sex were related instincts. Now, it's that worldview that we see portrayed in the novels by James. The author had to choose a particular name for the male hero, Christian Grey. The world is very gray there. If his name had been Christian White, the story would have to be different. We see the portrayal of gray sex in her novels. Now, when we turn to the Bible, we see that sex is always connected to life. 
even creating new life. This is the world of sacred sex. Created sex came in Genesis chapter 2, before Genesis chapter 3. It's only in chapter 3 where Adam and Eve fall into sin, and sin affected their sexual relationship massively. But in chapter 2, we see the description of sacred sex. Now, the relationship between Adam and Eve before sin is not something about which we should fantasize. It would be immoral, immorally intrusive for us or even the author of Genesis to tell us much about it. This is a protected private zone that Adam and Eve enjoyed. So we don't know anything about Adam and Eve's favorite technique, position, or sexual practice. Do not become voyeurs. But what we are told is that they clung to each other naked for a lifetime, and they were not ashamed. Sex was white. Gray and black sex only came later. Not something we should want. Now, I felt like I had to talk about Fifty Shades of Grey because it is today probably the world's most widely read book. Uh, probably the most widely read book in all of human history. Until three or four years ago, for 500 years, the Bible held that place. The Bible was the most read book in human history for at least 500 years, perhaps a little bit longer. That changed three or four years ago when Fifty Shades of Grey became the world's most widely read book in almost every known language. And the two main characters, Anastasia Steele and Christian Grey, are widely seen as the embodiment of 21st century sexuality at its best. And yet I have to say that I feel sorry for people who think sex cannot get any better than it is described there. In fact, as I was reading the book again this past week, I wondered if the author had ever experienced good sex. You see, in the story, Anastasia Steele experiences every sort of angst that people have ever experienced, all in connection with sexuality. And all these forms of angst that she experienced are organic dimensions of sexuality. They're not somehow foreign to it and added on. They're dimensions of it. Their relationship is not affiliated with joy or life or light. It's very, very dark. And the darkness does not arise from the specific sexual techniques that they employ or their positions or practices of anything of that sort. The darkness arises from the darkness in their souls, from the spiritual pattern in their souls. It's a, those novels are very, very dark and depressing. At times, I had to wonder if her feelings about sex could almost be described as hell on earth. Wow, although there is a bit of restoration at the end of the third novel. Why would anyone find this attractive? Yes, uh, there are some things that you might be, find curious. Uh, we all have a bit of the voyeur in us, I'm afraid. But this is dark. And it's really fantasy. It's a fantasy world. Now, there's one point, quotation. Anastasia says, quote, when in her attraction to Christian Grey, there is a weird electrical attraction crackling between us. But this is mythology. This isn't real life. In contrast, authentic sacred sex can be real. 
It can be white. Anyone who has experience with white sacred sex will not be attracted to imitate the patterns of steel and gray. Those with the experience of sacred sex will breathe a sigh of relief that their sex is qualitatively better than this. I notice that whereas the philosophy of the, several, the sexual revolution emptied sex of meaning, gray sex is filled with the worst possible meanings. Plain sex is perhaps a smaller threat to our humanity than is gray sex. But both plain sex and gray sex drive me back to the Bible to see if anything better can be found. Sacred sex can be filled with grace. Of course, grace is never automatic. Taking the Lord's Supper does not automatically bring God's grace into your life. Faith is needed. Reading the Bible does not automatically change our lives. Uh, we need to add trust and obedience. And to experience sacred, grace and sacred sex, more is needed than simply clinging to each other naked for a lifetime. And that something more that is needed is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is, quote, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. When this is added to sacred sex, we have 50 shades of white. I wish I had the literary ability to write a book of that title because I think it's the, one of the most needed books of our generation, 50 Shades of White. Such book would have to demonstrate that the pursuit of white sex is something really different from gray sex. And then one of the things I would note is that in Fifty Shades of White, there is a deep interdependence between a man and a woman. For a man to experience white sex, his wife must be walking in the spirit and showing the fruit of the spirit. For a woman to experience grace and white sex, her husband must be walking in the spirit, practicing the fruit of the spirit. Then sacred sex can be filled with grace. Now, I would point out that our world around us is filled with promises regarding sex. You say you need the right position, you need the right technique, you need the right position, you need the right toy. All those promises are false promises. The reason those are false promises is because sex is extremely spiritual. To find white sex, you need to be naked for a lifetime with a partner who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Nothing less will fill our heart's need for intimacy, for companionship. Now, I know that the term sacred sex is a very old term. Uh, it actually comes from ancient Chinese Taoism from about a thousand years ago. Uh, however, what the ancient Chinese Taoists described as sacred sex is not something I would recommend at all. It included uh, having multiple partners. It really meant that men were entitled to abuse and use women as they wished. Uh, it would be a justification for what we call sexual abuse today. Our de definition of sacred sex must arise from Genesis chapter 2. Now, the term sacred sex came into widespread use in our time via the uh, writings of the so-called modern tantra sexology. 
Now, modern tantra sexology no longer treats women so negatively as did ancient Taoism. In some ways, it's much better. Uh, but there's an equal focus on the needs of the man and the woman. And some thoughtful Christians might say that uh, modern tantra is a possible way of thinking about sexuality for Christians. But there's some things that, still, that are still there that must be rejected. Ancient Taoism and some of modern Tantra still says that there's a relationship between orgasm and the universe and cosmic energy. That's not true. Orgasms are part of bonding between a man and a woman in sacred sex. And as I've emphasized and must emphasize and again and again, sacred sex is a union between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Now, I've used the term spiritual discipline. What is that? Uh, I read a good website that says spiritual disciplines are, quote, habits, practices, and experiences that are designed to develop, grow, and strengthen certain qualities of spirit. Uh, think of uh, spiritual disciplines as the practices and habits that make you to become the kind of person God has called you to become. Uh, it's why we read the Bible. It's why we pray. It's why we participate in worship, why we use the sacraments. What is missing in every such list that I have read is sacred sex. And I think this has been a strategic mistake among our Christian authors, because what is one of the pressing needs of our generation, both in the churches and in society? It's for a better alternative to all the sexual abuse that characterizes our world and even characterizes the churches. So I believe we should describe frequent sacred sex as a spiritual discipline. Let's say for a moment that the pastor of your church is discovered having sex in the church office. But, as it turns out, the person with whom he is having sex is his wife of 40 years. There might be embarrassment. Faces might turn red. But there would not be a scandal that destroys the church or upsets the community. If it became well known that this happened, it would in fact help to build trust as a spiritual discipline for those who are married. This must be part of our response to the scandals that are shaking the churches and societies. And I hope my Roman Catholic counterparts hear or read this sermon so that we can begin that discussion with them. Now, I've said that sacred sex can be white, filled with grace, and a key that unlocks this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let me suggest that there's a second key, and that has to do with how we talk about sex. Excuse me, my tongue is clinging to my throat. I still, still remember, almost 20 years ago, I was riding in a taxi in Prague 6, and I, on the radio I heard the words of the uh, Bloodhound gang. Perhaps you've heard them. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. Not really, there's very little about sex in the Discovery Channel. Uh, but what this song illustrates is a way of talking about sexuality that has consequences. You see, our view of human nature and our view of sexuality are inseparably connected. The way you talk about one is how you talk about the other. And in this song, people are described as animals who do it. 
I'm thinking of the book of James. We're studying that in our home group. The book of James says, quote, The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. If this is true, it should influence how we talk about sex. This week I read a Christian marriage website that allows uh, some readers to write stories of their own sexual experiences with their spouses. Some of the stories were beautiful. They reminded me of the Song of Solomon. But I found some of the stories remarkably degrading because of the language they used to talk about each other and to describe their bodies and the bodies of their spouses. Now, as a young man, I worked in factories, had a lot of contract with truck drivers. I learned the language that they spoke. Often it was very undignified, not suitable for talking about people who were created in the image of God. That's what I was thinking of when I read this Christian website. It's our tongues that are, ev- that are evil. It's not the other parts of our body that are evil. And it is possible to talk about our bodies and our sexuality in a dignified and holy manner that will contribute to white, sacred sex that's filled with grace. It is largely with our language, our choice of words that we use, that we create Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Words create many of the fruits of the Spirit. And our words about sex can be gray or even black, or they can become white and filled with grace. Let me say this in words that uh, may embarrass some. Even an orgasmic scream can be filled with grace if the right words are used in that scream. And those words help create whatever follows. Words always create or destroy. And a godly orgasmic scream is best followed by a whispered prayer of thanks. Of course, there are some Christians, probably some of you, who are called to a life of singleness or celibacy. Maybe that's you. Paul described that as one of the gifts of the Spirit in the text that we read a few moments ago. Singleness, as a spiritual gift, frees a person for a greater degree of service for the church and in society. Uh, uh, the person who is single can take greater risks because he or she has less obligations to family, to wife, to children or grandchildren. So if you are single at this time, you should ask yourself if this is your calling, your spiritual gift. Celibacy can be a, for a short time, can be a long time, a lifetime thing. I know some of you here are single and would strongly prefer to be married. I wish I knew what to tell you. I don't know exactly what to say. I can only hope that what I've said here this morning will give you a more realistic set of expectations about what sacred sex is. Do not forget what I said earlier. Our world is filled with promises false promises regarding sex. And those false promises usually come from people who have little or no experience with grace-filled sacred sex. I want to conclude on a slightly different note, really a radically different note. That is that God forgives and can forgive us for sexual sins and to heal us 
from those wounds, though that healing may, may take time. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, we read, Neither do the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Bible assumes that many in the church have a background of terrible sexual sins and of experiencing terrible sexual abuse. But some of the greatest heroes in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, both men and women, had a background of, of sexual sin. But now, if we believe in Christ, we are washed, cleansed, and forgiven. The old life is gone, the new life has begun. If you have a background of sexual sin, I hope you find forgiveness and grace in Christ. You know that God no longer holds it against you if you have been forgiven in Christ. There is forgiven, and life can be filled with grace again. Amen. Our Father in heaven, I thank you again for giving us your book, your, book, your good book, that tells us so many things we need to know. Help us to apply it honestly, uh, perhaps in stark contrast with what's going around us in this empty world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.